the last year. Might, we may have lost a bit of momentum after the rise, but we had a really good start last year. So there's a PowerPoint here. You can get that up there, Damien. Some of you will recognize this guy, and he eventually appears on the screen. There you go. I don't know if you know who that is. Maybe the next slide will help. Um, but that's Buyo. It was great to see Buyo here last Sunday. Buyo started coming to our church about 10 years ago. Um, Dez brought him along from the Methodist church he'd been attending there. And at the time, we were doing services at Hillcrest Hospital. And Dez thought it would be great to get Buyo involved in that. We were all looking for people to help push wheelchairs. And Buyo was a great help with that. But Buyo became much more than that. Buyo actually ended up being a fantastic interrupter on a Sunday morning. Um, and he and I just had this connection. Um, a lot of folk in that service were Zulu. And so he would interpret for me. And we would just riff off each other. And just developed such a good friendship. Um, and what a voice Buyo has. For those of you who've heard him sing, man, he can sing the roof off. He's just an amazing voice. And uh, he's, he's come to our church camps a few times. He splits his time between us and the Methodists. He stays primarily with the Methodists because he feels some measure of obligation there. He says he is the youth group at the Methodist church. Um, he stays there on Sundays. He sings in the uh, little band on Sunday morning. And then straight after that goes and teaches their Sunday school because 15 of their Sunday school kids come from Mulwini or have in the past. And so he's a busy guy there on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to hear a testimony of Boyer, just of his life, it's, I'll make sure that it's on our website. I'll put a link to it. And you can, I did an interview with him about a year and a half ago, just some of the issues that he's faced in his life. And for years, that little shack in the background is very, I know you don't recognize the good looking guy in the front there with the great beard. Um, he was quite a, quite a guy in our church. Anyway, um, so behind, behind the two of us, there's that lovely little shack that you can see. Maybe in the next picture as well, I think you'll see the shack as well. So that's where Boyo lived for about 10 years. Just before COVID hit, our church helped him buy the piece of land that that shack is on. Uh, he put in about uh, two-thirds of the cash. He put in the rest. He owns that piece of land. He's got time deeds for everything. It's wonderful. But I was chatting to Adam and Methodist at the beginning of last year. We had words with each other. And we just said, Boyo, remember both of our churches, and it said, something cannot live in a place like that. Um, how can anyone live like that? And so our two churches came together. We accessed some funds from a gift fund that we had for special projects. Um, the Methodists put some money in, Boyo put money in, and we built him a house. So we'll just scroll through the pictures now. Um, a group of us went on a Saturday and poured foundations. Boyo had dug the foundations. Just keep going, uh, Damien, there's lots to see. Um, so he dug out the foundations. We poured concrete in them. About two, three weeks later, the Methodists went. They poured the slab. We then paid a bricky. To, to just do the brickwork and to get it up to roof height. And then about a month or so later, we needed to raise more money. And we went and put a roof on the place. And Boyo now has a house. Um, we'll get there eventually. A house that he's proud of. And a house that I'm excited about. And just to be clear, I'll say it, say it again in a moment. This was the handout. This was the handout. See, we did something more than just 
build some guy a little house. We gave a friend dignity. We played a part in moving someone from poverty to some kind of, not quite middle class comfort, but to move them out of a poverty lifestyle. Is that it? Oh dear, I thought there were more. Okay. Um, and then to add to that, one of the medalists in the church, in their church paid for him to get through his matric. He'd never finished matric, so he finished matric at the age of, I think, 26. He'd hoped to become a nurse, but the school that he went to didn't offer life sciences because they couldn't do that. He thought about becoming a social worker. Last year, one of the other people in the Methodist Church paid for him to do one of these um, carer courses, a three-month or six-month course. He got rave reviews from his prep that he did in one of the care homes in Hillcrest. He now has a permanent job at a Kloof Care Rest Home in Kloof. Again, we've done more than just help some guy with a handout. We've given him dignity. We've transformed his life. People in our two churches have worked together to change someone. Will it change South Africa? No. But has it changed? Has it made an impact in Boyer's life? Ah. Oh yes. More than you can imagine. He now has his two nephews live with him in a new house. And he's paying for them to get through school. To make sure that they don't go through the same route that he went through. Have we made a difference? Then there's a, a guy called Samuel who used to come with Boyo and he tried to do the interpreting thing but wasn't quite as sharp as Boyo was in it. A guy called Trevor Woods, who's this kind of connected to our church a little bit, took him under his wing, uh, latched onto him when he was an orphan um, in Mulwini, got him through school, and then uh, once Samuel finished school, he enrolled at UNISA to do his teaching diploma. And went sat with him on Saturdays and helped him get through his teaching degree. At the end of his three-year, four-year degree, whatever that was, he was not able to find a job. So he pursued honors and did his honors degree. This is an orphan. And then still struggled to find a job. And Renal phoned me and said, I'm, we're looking for, at Hilkers now, we're looking for a lab assistant. I said, here's Samuel C.V. And he went for an interview with Renal and the headmaster, and the headmaster said, you're not a lab assistant, you can't get this job. But you are a teacher, and we're going to give you a job as a teacher. And if we started teaching, Samuel started teaching at Hillcrest High School last year. And at the beginning of this year, he bought a car. <laughs> and again, little things. Have we changed the world? No. But for one young man's life, we've made a difference. We haven't just handed out charity, we've given a hand up, given someone dignity. There's been debate in church circles for the last, I don't know, two years, maybe two and a half years now, as to the role of the church in social justice. Social justice has been a big, trendy topic in a lot of outside of church world. And there's been a lot of back and forth within the church world as to what the church's response should be to social justice. There are some churches who say that the church should have, should play little or no role in social justice. That the church is here to preach the gospel and nothing else. That the job of the church is to get people's souls into heaven and it doesn't matter about their bodies. John MacArthur. Uh, says that kind of thing. And there's been things that I like about John MacArthur. This is not one of them. 
I, I, I think he is dead wrong on this issue. I think John's just got too old, and I think his mind is going. <laughs> there are other churches, um, and I think this is what's got John worried, is that there are other churches that have become so locked up in issues of social justice that the entire focus is running creches and running soup kitchens and establishing orphanages. And they do that so much that they forget to preach the gospel that sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. And that's also not right. As is so often the case, both extremes are wrong. My point this morning, I hope to get there, is that if the gospel does not change the world around you, you have not understood the gospel. <laughs> that if the gospel is just about getting you from hell into heaven, you have not understood the gospel one little bit. That if the gospel does not move you to care for the poor and for the vulnerable and for those on the edges of, of society, you have misunderstood the gospel. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is not some, something one day in the sky when we float around on a cloud somewhere. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom, Jesus said, is here. It is among you. It is in the midst of you. And if the kingdom of God does not tra transform society, then the kingdom of God is not good. If the gospel is all about getting your butt out of hell and into heaven, you, you don't know the gospel. The Bible is simply too full of commands to care for the poor, and to care for the orphan, and to look out for the refugee, we simply cannot ignore those commands. And they're, just, they're not just commands of do good, they're commands that are directly linked to the very essence of the gospel itself. And so we're going to read a very well-known story of Jesus this morning in Luke chapter 10. I want to remind you that the last couple of weeks we've been looking at the four loves of the church. The four things that should be foundational in every church's life. The four things that every church should build on and thrive from. And if these things aren't there, I don't know if the church will function well at all. We started with the very first week where Jesus um, speaking, and actually we'll read it again, where Jesus speaking to a young man says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we spoke about the issue of worship that underpins the church, right? We love God and we worship Him. Last week we looked at Jesus' words to His disciples in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says to them, you shall love one another. And He's speaking to the disciples in their little community. And He says, this is what you guys are going to, this is how you guys are going to change the world by your love for one another. We love God, there's a vertical thing. We love one another. There's a I don't know, the downward thing, into ourselves. And so there's the sense of building community. It's not just worshipping God and that's all. We don't just come to church to worship God. We come to church for community. And it's in the context of community that we love for and care for and pray for and, and honor and encourage one another. Next week, we're going to talk about God so loved the world that He sent His Son. And as He sends His Son, He sends you. And that as the church, we have a mission to accomplish. Worship, community, mission. Love God, love one another, love the world. This week, John Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Could someone please get me a glass of water? Uh, oh, thanks. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? Thank you, see, your reward will be great in heaven. Thank you. <laughs> he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, right? So, just what we said two weeks ago. And, love your neighbor as yourself. He wanted correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went, him, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, God. And do likewise. This is probably simple enough to understand, isn't it? I mean, do I need to even preach, right? There's an expert in the law, he wants to put Jesus on the spot, and Jesus turns it all back on him and just says, What do you think your answer to your question is? And he quotes from Deuteronomy and he quotes from Leviticus, and Jesus applauds him and says, Well done, but right. And the guy needs to justify himself, which is a bit of a odd phrase, but I guess what's going on is that it doesn't want to sound stupid. He's asked a question to which he knows the answer. Right? He asks a question, and Jesus says, well, what do you think? And he says, well, this is what I think. And Jesus says, yeah, you got the answer right. Why don't you need to ask me for the answer to a question that you already know? What are you doing? And so he wants to get out of that like awkwardness and justify himself. And who is my neighbor? And there's lots of debate at the time as to who your neighbor was. Is it literally the guy who lives next door? Is it the person who lives across the street? Is it the person in the village next door? Who is your neighbor? And Jesus tells this very great, very well-known story, right? We know uh, the, 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 the yes guy, he falls in the hands of robbers, and he is, he's not just, he's not just mud. I mean, you know you've been properly mud when you don't have any clothes left on you. <laughs> then you know you really have been taken up, right? So he's on the side of the road, naked, bleeding, nothing left, and who walks past? A priest. A priest walks past. And I can imagine, you've got to imagine the sense of what's going on in the crowd, right? The priest is this high and mighty guy who works at the temple in Jerusalem. You don't have a priest in your local town, in your local village, in the local synagogue. The priest is the high and mighty guy. He's the top tier of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. And the priest comes along. Is he going to stop and help the guy? And the crowds snigger and giggle and nudge one another. There's a knowing grin. Of course not. The priest walks right by and like, yeah, we, we know that because that's what the priests are like. They're too busy. They're talking about They don't have time to stop with the priest. The crowd is going to yeah, we, we, we see where this glory is going. The next time to walk past is a Levite. And again, in the Jewish hierarchy, priests and 
Levites. It's like the Pope and then the Cardinals, right? And then the, I don't know what's next, the Archbishops and Bishops. And, you know, there's a, there's a hierarchy going on here. So the priest walks past. They all giggle. Yeah, we know the priest will walk past. The Levite comes along when he stops. No chance. Giggle, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, wink. Oh, what the Levite's going to do? He walks past. Who's next to walk past? If we're working our way down the Jewish hierarchy, the Pope has walked past. The Cardinal has walked past. Who's coming next? The Archbishop is coming next. What will he do? Who's next in the Jewish hierarchy? You've got priests, you've got Levite. The next guy on the list is, is the scribes. Which, interestingly enough, is what this lawyer is. So, here's how the story is expected to go. Jesus, young, young scribe, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Priest walks past. Levite walks past. Who's next? The scribe walks along, and the scribe stops and helps the man. That's what this guy is expecting, right? Because that's how it goes. Who's my neighbor? The injured man on the side of the street is your neighbor. You're the scribe. That, that's how the story's going to go. And so everyone's waiting for Jesus. Is he going to say that? The young man's hoping he's going to say that, and he gets to be the hero of the story. The crowd is kind of waiting on tenterhooks. Would it be the scribe who stops? Or will the scribe also walk past? And then who would it be? The local rabbi from the nearest synagogue? How about a, a little Jewish widow? Well, she stopped out. That's how the story is expected to go. Everybody knows how the story ends. And Jesus goes, a Samaritan comes along. This is not how the story is meant to go. Can you imagine the spluttering outrage of the lawyer when he is expected to be the next one inserted in the story to come and help, and instead of him, his place has been taken by a hated Samaritan. How dare If the parable were told today, it would be the story of a coffee-dressed Buddha Oki on the side of the street with his long poster and a comb in the sock, while his comb had been stolen. And he's lying on the side of the road, and John Steelcum walks past. And then the oak from the Freedom Front Plus, whatever his name is, he comes along and has a look, and he walks past. And who's next? Who's going to be the next one to stop? Herman Ashaba, right? He's the new hero in South African politics. He'll fix it. But who stops? Julius. <laughs> and Julius the Lamb stops the car and gets out and rides the guy to the back of his land road. Right, his tender premier, Landro, puts on the blue lights and gets into Hillary's hospital and hands over his government-issued credit card and says, there's no limit. Pay whatever you need to fix this guy. That's not how the story goes, does it? You, you, most of you have been in church long enough to have heard something about this and you know that the Samaritans and the Jews didn't like each other. If, you, if you're wondering all about that, that and how it goes, you've just got to think, I, I, I suspect that this story happens one day after what happened the day before. If you go back to chapter 9, there's a little thing there in verse 51, titled Samaritan Opposition. Jesus sends out the disciples, they go to different villages, they're preparing for Jesus to come. The disciples go to a Samaritan village to say, Jesus is on the way, he's going to come and bring the kingdom, he's going to heal the sick, he's going to teach you the good news 
coming, and Samaritans chase Jesus, chase the disciples out of the village. They throw rocks at them. I don't know. They chase the disciples out. The disciples come running back to Jesus, like, oh, no, the Samaritans take us. What are we going to do? And James and John say to Jesus, Can you believe these 50 Samaritans? We just want to go and do some good to them. And they chase us out with rocks and sticks. You know what, Jesus? Say the word, and James and I, we're going to call down fire from heaven. Samaritans, when Jesus says to the lawyer, who was the neighbor to the injured man, the lawyer can't even say the Samaritan. In fact, he has to come up with a very convoluted, apparently in Greek, it's very convoluted and confusing, and convoluted, he, he comes up with this, it sounds something like this, the one who did the mercy with the other one. <laughs> That's how we answer the question. Who was the good neighbor? It would be easy to say the Samaritan, but I can't even get that word out of my mouth. The one who did the mercy with the other one. What's interesting, of course, in this, I mean, you can see it, right? This is not Jesus saying, as a good Jew, you need to look after Samaritans. And in fact, it's kind of funny because the guy asked the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't answer with, your neighbor is the wounded guy. But Jesus slightly changes the question and says, who was neighborly? Who was the one who acted like a neighbor? And of course the answer is the Samaritan did. And if I, like I said today, if I say Julius is the good neighbor, I don't think I get much applause, would I? And then the, I think one of the points that Jesus makes in this is that this is not just about love your neighbor as yourself. Because the two phrases, statements go together. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. They hinge off one another. And if love for neighbor is a direct result of love for God, what does that say about the priest? What does that say about the Levite? What does that say about the hated Samaritan? A couple of things to look at in terms of the Samaritan and what's going on here and some things to take away this morning. Number one, the Samaritan takes pity on the guy on the side of the road. So this guy is clearly walking through bandit territory. Apparently it's well known in that day, it's like don't go to Point Road at you know, 8 o'clock on a Saturday night for a little walk along. Don't, don't, don't do that. It's the same sort of thing. This is a notorious road, there's caves and wilderness. Don't go along this road by yourself, it's dangerous. So this guy had been violently mugged and stripped. There's every chance that the bad guys are still around in the hillsides waiting for someone else. Maybe this is a trap. Maybe that's why the other guys ran away, kept moving. But what, what response does the Samaritan have to this guy? Pity. He took pity on the man. You could say, what a stupid guy. I mean, really? You shouldn't travel alone on a lonely road. You know it's dangerous. It's your own fault that you've got into this mess. I mean, you clearly had stuff, right? You had stuff worth stealing. 
if you only look after yourself better, maybe if you fought a little bit harder, maybe, maybe if you hired yourself on God, you wouldn't be in this situation where I now have to help you. I mean, if you only look after yourself, this is clearly your fault. You see what I'm going with this? Isn't that often our response to the poor? It's their fault they're like this. If only they tried a little bit harder. If only they put in a little bit more effort at school. If only they put up a little bit of a fight. And then what we want to do is we want to ask the needy person a million and one questions. So the Samaritan comes to the side of the road and says, Listen, are you really needy? Or are you just faking it? Um, are you worth my attention and my time? I'll give you, I'll give you a band-aid and a tomato. Um, but you better not go and sell it to someone else for drugs. Actually, a tomato is drugs. Um, but you better not use it as drugs, right? We, 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 we've got, because we've got to make sure that the poor person is worth our assistance. The Samaritan man just sees a man in need and takes a pity on him. And it's a funny Greek word. Splagma. He had splagma on him. Just say that all day. Splagma. When you're home this afternoon, you say, I, I have splagma on you. Which is, just sounds awful, doesn't it? Splagma. It just means pity from your deepest soul. It's not just a little thing. It's from the deepest. It's like to love someone from your guts. That's the actual your gut word. It's a guttural, emotional response to what is seen. And so the Samaritan sees an injured man and feels a deep, emotional, guttural response to the need. Not just the idea, but a deep response to this man. There is an emotional connection to pain. And how good we are at cutting ourselves off from that emotion. How easy it is for us to close our eyes and to walk on the other side. We live in a country of vast need. I say this again and again and again. We live in a country that has the largest poverty gap in the world. The gap between the wealthy and the poor is bigger in our country than it is in India, than it is in Brazil than it is in Venezuela, of all places. What a kind of fact. We remain the most unequal society on the planet. And yet how often, how good we are, at, how good I am, at closing eyes to it. Does the gospel of Jesus not need to move us to some kind of emotional, deep emotional response to me. But it's not, just, it's not just pity that the Samaritan feels. He does something about it. There is a cost. There is pity, but there is also a cost. He cleans the wounds, he bandages the poor man, loads him onto a donkey, takes him to hospital, pays the bills. There is action with cost. Some of us might manage the pity thing, and our oh, shame we say. We might even manufacture a tear for a moment, but in what way do we actually help? In what way do we actually make any difference? And we know this. Making a difference, bringing about change, will not come without cost. It will cost us time. 
will cost us effort. It will cost us money. It may come with no thanks at all. We don't hear how the story ends. We don't hear that this man got out of his coma and said, a Samaritan, let me send him a thank you card. We don't know if he woke up and said, a Samaritan? What? No. I don't want nothing to do with this. We don't know. We don't know. All we know is that doing something about human suffering comes at a cost. There's great response to the story. Jesus asks the question, who shows himself to be the neighbor? And although the guy gets the convoluted answer, I love the wording that he uses, the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. At least the lawyer gets that right. There is mercy on display. Although, even now, I wonder if it's the right word. Mercy is just withholding what you deserve. Right? You, you go speeding, the policeman pulls you over, you deserve to pay a fine, but he says, I'm going to show mercy and let you off. That, that's mercy. Not getting what you do deserve. There's another Bible word, grace, right? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So that is when you're pulled over by the police for speeding, and instead of giving you a fine, he gives you a coke. It's not just that you're not getting what you don't deserve, but you are getting something that you shouldn't get. So it's kind of funny to say that he showed mercy. He didn't give him, give him what he deserved. What did he deserve? Well, he was a stupid, foolish man who got himself into trouble. What he deserves is to lie on the road and die. But instead, we'll, 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 we'll withhold that from him. Is that it? Mercy is surely the least we should offer to those in need. And you may look at the poor, at the destitute, at the needy, at the single mom, at the refugee, and, 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 and you may well say they deserve everything they've got. They brought this upon themselves, their choices, their decisions in life, and God calls us to show mercy. To take away from them what you think they deserve. I, I do think it would be better if this man had replied the one who shows grace, because surely that's what happened in the story. It's not just mercy. It's grace. And then Jesus' response is then, go and do likewise. Be a good Samaritan. How hard that is. How hard is it to love your neighbor as yourself? It's easy to say I love my neighbor. Do I love my neighbor as myself? When you look at Buyo, do you love him as you love yourself? I mean, really? Do I? Can I really go and do likewise? And you know, this is often where the Sermon on the Good Samaritan ends. Go and try harder. Go and be better. Go and be a good Samaritan. Give it your all, and you'll all leave this week. Oh, it's a great moral story. I, I'm going to be a good person this week. I'm going to make sandwiches and hand them out at the traffic lights. Mm. <laughs> There's a great story from Chuck Swindle. He, uh, when he was about, uh, teaching about college many, many years ago, he set an assignment for his students, and he deliberately gave it to them late, and his assignment was due at 9 o'clock on, uh, I think it was on Sunday morning. Um, that's what he made, 9 o'clock Sunday morning. And so on Saturday night, all his students stayed up way past bedtime, because of course Saturday night's the night to go and have some fun, and now he's still going to do this assignment. And then he said, Sunday morning at quarter to nine, the, the, the pathway to his office was just 
a stream of students to get their assignment in on time. And on the parkway lay a young guy who obviously had a rough Saturday night and he'd been bleeding from his head. And the students ran past him one after the other and left the guy on the side bleeding. Of course he wasn't bleeding, he was a setup. And the um, topic of the assignment was what is the true meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan? <laughs> no one passed. <laughs> but what if the story is about more than just go and be nice? See, here's how we tend to read Bible stories. We're a little bit like the lawyer. We tend to read the Bible stories, look for the hero in that story, and decide, that's me. I'm David, a little bit of faith, and I will defeat my giants. You're not David, to say, right? You need a David to defeat your giants for you. You're not the hero in the story. Who's the hero in the story in the Bible? What's the correct Sunday school answer to every question? Oh, Jesus. Jesus, right? Jesus is the answer. He's always the answer, right? What if, instead of seeing ourselves as the hero in the story, we see ourselves instead as... Because I know what you're thinking, well, maybe I'm the priest, maybe I'm the priest. What if you're the wounded man on the side of the road? Broken, robbed, bleeding out in the knee, Moments from death. Who then is the good Samaritan? Is it not Jesus? Is that not a better gospel understanding of the story? See, I'll say it often enough that I can't just say, go and be good. Go and try harder. Go and manufacture some tears and manufacture some sandwiches and be nice to poor people this week. Because what you'll do is, you'll make a sandwich tomorrow and you'll hand it out to a beggar at the traffic lights, but there's seven other beggars that you miss. And so now you're overwhelmed with guilt that you haven't done enough. And so on Tuesday, and so, so what you end up being is you become the below average Samaritan. That's what you are. So on Tuesday morning, you make 10 sandwiches, hand them out to all the beggars that you see, and the leftover sandwiches that you can't hand out, you give to stray cats. Now, you're the extremely, exceptionally good Samaritan. And you can now pat yourself on the back at how great and self-righteous you are in your pride. See, any sermon that ends with me saying, go and try harder, results in one of two things. I can't do it, I'm a terrible person, I'm a bad Samaritan, I'm a great person, I've done it all, I'm a fantastic Samaritan. And none of those are any good whatsoever, because none of those lead us to the cross, none of those point us to Jesus, none of those are good for our spiritual life. We're not meant to be overwhelmed with guilt, nor are we meant to be self-righteous Pharisees. What if we read the story and go, I'm not the hero, Jesus is, I'm the guy in and guess what? Religion can't fix it. Religion walks right past me. I'm broken, sinful, ruined. And what does religion do? Passes right by. I can't get better by being religious. Levites and rules and laws can't save me. Religion, the priest and the Levite walk past because religion cannot save. Religion cannot help a broken sinner who is robbed by humanity, robbed of humanity by the devil himself. But Jesus, Jesus, he sees your need. And he looks on you with pity. And he sees your brokenness and your wounds. 
the wounds made to your psyche by your parents and by your teacher and by your husband and by your children, the wounds made in your soul by your own sin and by the sin of others and by the devil. He sees your helpless estate and is moved deeply in his soul with pity for you. And then, at great cost to himself, he gives all, shows you mercy, gives you grace, carries you, restores you to life. He pays the price. Jesus is the good Samaritan. And so then the point of the story is not so much be like the Samaritan, the point of the story then becomes be like Jesus. If we see ourselves as the hero, we get to look down on the poor and the needy and the broken. We get to say shame if they only strive harder. But in kindness, I'll reach down to them, I'll lift them up, whatever person I am. But if we change the story, and we see ourselves as the broken sinner, then when we see the poor and the stranger and the refugee and the other race, we see ourselves in a mirror. Now we're not looking down with pity on these poor people who just can't figure it out themselves. We're now looking in a mirror and going, this spiritually was me. I'm reflected in their poverty. And if Jesus shows mercy to me, how can I not do the same? And if Jesus is going to show grace to me, how can I not do the same? The big deal this morning is not to keep burdens on you and say, go be a good moral person. Don't be like the priests, that's bad. Be good, help people. The point this morning is this, you were, you are, a broken knee sinner saved by grace. And the only way that we will ever joyfully help those in need is when we see ourselves who we are and recognize in Jesus the good Samaritan is taken up in us. So here's where that leaves us this morning. Number one, let the gospel change you. Let the gospel change your perspective. To go, I'm not the hero. I'm the sinner in need of mercy, in need of grace. And then number two, go and do likewise, be like Jesus, not as some kind of religious obligation, but as a response to the gospel of grace and mercy that you have received. How do we do that? That's the big question. How do we do that? Where will we go? And we need to pop that out as a church over the next coming months. As individuals, as a church, how do we show mercy this year? What do we do as a response to the gospel that shows our world that we are good neighbors to those in need, that we ourselves are recipients of grace, spreading grace to others? Join Hannah and Heather and Georgina at Dewey's School. Speak to Dan and Kerry. Much of their mission focuses just on this, on being a good neighbor to the needy and letting the gospel of the kingdom transform society, not just by handing out charity, Changing lives. How does the gospel change us? How does the gospel change our prejudices? This is a story about race, whether we like it or not. It's a story about race. And here we are in South Africa, where we deal with race. What does the story say to us about our prejudices? How we speak of people of a different racial background and a different skin color? Of what words we use? the gospel change us. 
you're broken inside the road, bleeding close to death. You've been stripped naked. Jesus, a good Samaritan, has come down your wounds, given you a new robe, his righteousness, and set you up for life. You want the band to join me? I'm closing prayer. Precious Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus, our good Samaritan. Our good Samaritan who has picked us up inside the road, who has tended to our broken body, our wounds, that you have clothed us in righteousness, you have raised us, Call us to go in your life, Lord. Lord, may we be moved not by guilt, not by pride, moved by the gospel of your grace. That we may see ourselves in the mirror. By your gospel, we will be transformed. That we might transform this. We're going to stand, sing our uh, song we started with this morning, Our God is for us.
here today, may we leave here knowing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we leave with our eyes open that we may see the need around us, moved with pity by your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stay for a cup of tea or coffee before you go.